Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! Okay, this novel is uh, Calligraphy of the Witch. is set in the times of the of the New England witchcraft trials in in Boston specifically, and uh, it's about a character named Concepcion Benavides that I invented in my first historical novel, Sor Juana's Second Dream, uh, and she is Sor Juana's assistant, and so she's been trained by Sor Juana to take dictation, and she you know learned how to do uh, you know a, a very special kind of calligraphy because Sor Juana wanted to have her a really nice hand and whatever and uh, and so she is indentured basically to the convent but she escapes in 1683 at a time when there's a there's a pirate siege in Veracruz and the pirates happen to uh, you know grab her and grab the friend that she escapes with and takes them to New England and she becomes part of a cargo of slaves and she then gets sold into slavery now she's a mestiza she's not a slave I mean she's not black but because she's been you know there captured with all the slaves she's sold as a slave and uh, and so she has also, on the journey of the six-week uh, passage from, uh, from New Spain to New England, the pirate captain has been raping her. So she, when she arrives, she's with child, and she doesn't know that. Okay, neither do the people that buy her. And, uh, and so at, at some point, you know, she wakes up to this being, having to be the caretaker of an old man and feeling something wrong with her body, something growing, and uh, being surrounded by people. She has no idea what they're saying, who they are. They are also, the English uh, had, you know, historical animosity against anybody from Spain or New Spain. Uh, the, they had real issues with Catholics, and so she's all of the above, but she's also a mestiza. She's a brown woman, and she's got two color eyes. So she's got a green eye and a brown eye. And so already, so already people are disliking her just because of her difference. And so the sections I'm going to read right after she gives birth her, um, the two conflicts, main conflicts in the novel are with um, Concepcion, whose name gets changed to Thankful Seagraves, because she should be thankful that she was brought here among the chosen children of God. And because she almost killed herself, she wanted to jump off the boat and, and drown herself, so they called her Seagraves, right? And so that's what, that we're constantly moving between Thankful Seagraves and, and, and Concepcion in terms of uh, the perspective. Um, so the baby's been born, and the um, the conflict is with her um, the the wife of the man who bought her, um, who you know covets the baby because she knows that you know there's a baby coming. She herself is barren; she had a son, but she wants another baby, and she wants to have this baby, and she uh, you know she covets her, especially because when she's born, she's born white, okay? Because the pirate is part Dutch and she herself being mestiza. So the whole notion of colors is really important in this, in this book. So here's Re Rebecca and uh, Concepcion. You can't call her by that papist name, and that's final, said Rebecca, watching as the child took her mother's milk in deep, thirsty swallows. Her name is Juana Jeronima. That is her name, mistress. 
The minister will not christen her unless she has an English name, a Christian name. This is our custom, thankful Seagraves. You have to change her name to fit our custom, just as my husband changed your name. You want, do want her christened, don't you? I hate thankful Seagraves. Well, you shouldn't hate it. It's a fine name. Now we can make the name you want an English name, or we can choose a new one for her. What do you want? I want Juana Jerónima Benavides. That's too many names, Thankful Seagraves. Just two names. She held up two fingers. Thankful Seagraves. Rebecca Greenwood. See? Two names. Juana. Hannah. Jerónima. Huh. What? Say that again. Jerónima. Rebecca took the tablet off Caleb's desk and handed it to Thankful Seagraves. I don't understand you, so I can't think of an English equivalent. Write it out so I can see what it looks like. The girl stared at the slate, picked up the chalk dangling from the short length of rope fitted to the frame, wiped the slate with her other hand. Go on then, Thankful Seagraves, said Rebecca. Your master purchased you because you could write. So let's see it. Write out the name you just said. Write? Like this said Rebecca, yanking the chalk from the girl's hand. Rebecca printed her name in capital letters across the top of the slate. Then, pointing to each letter, she said aloud, R-E-B-E-C-C-A, Rebecca. She tapped her chest, my name is Rebecca. The girl nodded and took the chalk. C-O-N-C-E-P-C-I-O-N, she wrote under Rebecca. My name is Concepcion. No, 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 Rebecca scolded her. She pointed to the baby. The baby's name, right? The baby's name. Ah, said the girl, nodding in comprehension. Yes, yes, I know. She wrote out, J-U-A-N-A, J-E-R-O-N-I-M-A, Geronima, said Rebecca. That sounds like a slave's name. You don't want such a beautiful baby to have a slave's name, do you? What is slave? Slave, you know, said Rebecca feeling her ears grow warm. Like you, like Sarah Moore. She crossed her arms at the wrists and pretended they were shackled together. Slaves. The girl frowned, and Rebecca could not tell whether she had gotten her meaning or not. Never mind, Rebecca said. Here, I have an idea. She took the tablet and wrote out the girl's English name underneath the popish one. Juana, Hannah, Geronima, Jeremiah. There, that's a Christian name, see? She handed the tablet back to Thankful Seagraves. The girl traced the outline of the letters with her index finger, silently mouthing out the name. Hannah Jeremiah, said Rebecca. It's a beautiful English name, just beautiful. She took the tablet out of Concepcion's hands, pretending not to notice the tears that had suddenly welled up in the girl's eerie two-colored eyes. Reverend Mather is going to be very pleased. Benavides. Sorry, said Rebecca. No more names, just Hannah, Jeremiah. Jeronima, the girl said behind her. I call her Jeronima. Call her whatever you wish then, said Rebecca, tired of dealing with the stubborn creature. But she will be christened with a good Christian name, and it would be best not to confuse the child and make her think she's somebody else. And you, by the way, are never to refer to yourself by that other name. Your name is Thankful Seagraves, and that's final. She scribbled T-H-A-N-K-F-U-L-S-E-A-G-R-A-V-E-S at the bottom of the slate. Concepcion spit at the slate and wiped the name off. And then just a little bit from the letters that she writes to her daughter. In Spanish, but of course they're written in English. Mi niña, before you were born, 
I was dying from a fever that settled deep in my bones after I was bought from the pirate ship. Rebecca says the midwife could neither bleed it nor purge it away. The only thing that broke the fever was your birth. One of my earliest memories in this country is your life charging through me like a young bull that loose in the arena. Your little head hard as horn, battering at the small doorway of life until you broke it open and squeezed into the icy gray-blue light of a February morning in the land called Massachusetts. I remember that your skin was the same color as the sky is right now, a bruised blue-gray. Rebecca says that you kicked wildly at the midnight midwife's hands as she tied the cord. Each of your eyes was a dark seed, clenched tight in your tiny, wrinkled face. Your blue lips stretched wide, lungs and throat quivering with your cries. Juana Jeronima, I said. The first words I remember uttering in this country were your name. I held out my arms and took you from Rebecca's hands. At the sound of my voice, you went quiet for an instant, as if you had recognized a familiar sound in the cold strangeness to which I delivered you. I could tell that you were listening, waiting for me to say more, but someone spoke before me, and you started howling again. I can find no trace of Indian in you, and very little African, though both of them run in my veins. The pirate must have been half white, despite that his skin looked darker than mine. When he bought me from the pirate ship, Becca's husband called me a half-breed because of the two colors of my eyes. Becca says he named me thankful because he wanted me to be thankful that I was brought to live among the chosen children of God in this city upon a hill. But I do not see a city, such as the great city that I was born to in New Spain, with its royal palace and its great cathedral, its plazas and causeways, its hospitals and theaters and university, its throngs of people of many castes and colors. The city where you were born, Jeronima, is called Boston, and I find it cramped with narrow gabled houses set close together with crooked cow lanes that pretend to be streets. I think this whole city would fit inside our Plaza Mayor in Mexico. There's a market square surrounded by a few crude shops, docks and piers and warehouses, but everything is muddy. In the thickest places, the mud is like a swamp, and one's shoes can stick in the mud and never come out. This is the only similarity I find with Mexico, the way the rain floods the ground and turns the streets, even the cobbled ones, into a cesspool. <clears throat> And then finally, this last little bit. I have seen no one else like me. It is as if castes do not exist here. There are blacks like Sarah Moore and Indians like the ones who appear suddenly out of nowhere, walking in a straight line through the town, scaring people out of their wits, or the captured Indian women who get dragged to the auction block down by the docks. Mostly, everyone looks like Rebecca and ruffled collar, their skin like milk, eyes like blue glass. I see no mestizos, moriscos, mulatos, chinos, albinos, zambaicos, coyotes hanging the airs, jump backwards, or any of the other castes or racial mixes that we have in New Spain. Nothing other than white or black or Indian. How can I explain about caste so that you understand why I am an aberration in New England, though in Mexico, which has many racial mixes, I am as common as salt? And that's where I'll stop. Thank you. So are we gonna we're gonna do the readings and then we're gonna do questions all yeah, yeah. all together. Okay. Thank you for <coughs>
So um, I'm Jesus Trevino, and um, I'm going to read from my uh, latest collection of short stories. I have three uh, short story collections. Uh, the Fabulous Sinkhole, um, The Skyscraper That Flew, and Return to Arroyo Grande. Um, the uh, Fabulous Sinkhole um, is the title story of the first collection. Uh, a lady finds a sinkhole in her front yard. It grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, by midday, thousands of objects are bubbling up out of the sinkhole. And all the 22 stories in the three short story collections are what people took from the sinkhole and how it changed their lives. And I'm going to read one of those. Before that, I wanted to just plug Eyewitness, which is my uh, memoir. It's called Eyewitness, a Filmmaker's Memoir of the Chicano Movement. I was fortunate in that in the late 60s and early 70s, I was an activist filmmaker. Um, and I was uh, uh, fortunate to be filming uh, on many of the key events of the Chicano Civil Rights Movement. And, um, and this book chronicles uh, my experiences as a, an activist, as a filmmaker, and uh, it kind of uh, analyzes the, the Chicano Civil Rights Movement movement, um, how we started it, uh, where it went to, and um, the last chapter looks back uh, 30 years and says, um, where are we now? Anyway, um, it's very factual and it's intriguing. Uh, there's a dead body in every chapter, and, that's, and that, that is a joke, but it's real. Okay, return to Arroyo Grande. <clears throat> um, I have several characters in Arroyo Grande, and um, we, uh, we follow them from the time they're 14 or 15 years old to the time they are adults. The last collection, this one, uh, they're all grown up. In this case, one of the, the characters is Bobby Hernandez. He's a cop. He's a Arroyo Grande cop. Arroyo Grande, incidentally, is a fictitious town that is situated somewhere to the west of El Paso, Texas. And uh, there's a lot of clues in it. <clears throat> so this is what happens one night uh, to um, Bobby Hernandez. It started off uh, as a pretty normal night. I pulled out of the station at Calle Uno and Sycamore and started out my usual loop, which took me east to Interstate 10, making sure there was no stranded motorist there. Then getting back onto surface streets, heading down Pershing Street to Calle Diez. Then I'd swing around by the cemetery on the south side of town. Eventually, I'd find myself back on Calle Mercado. After years of patrolling Arroyo Grande, I'd gotten used to checking out certain familiar places, places I had long ago determined would be logical places for someone to engage in mischief. I was never disappointed. The back of the high school stadium was one of these sites where once or twice a month I'd cough up teenagers sipping beer or smoking pot. The wide plaza in front of the Baron and Reber skyscraper was another with its hidden nooks and crannies ideal for drug deals. And of course the grassy rise of the gates of the Arroyo Grande Cemetery, a great place for some patron of the Copa de Oro bar to sleep off a borrachera. Most of the time, the majority of the many, many nights I patrolled Arroyo Grande, nothing, absolutely nothing happened. The gentle people of Arroyo Grande slept their peaceful sleep and gathered their strength for the many chores ahead of them the next day. This night was such a night, or so I thought. 
The gentle, um, the first patrol was uneventful. I returned to the station and caught the evening news and the Tonight Show. And then at midnight, I set out for the second patrol of the night. And that's when it all changed. I had just passed the cemetery and pulled into Calle Mercado when I saw the toddler. Now ordinarily, seeing a three-year-old riding his tricycle along the bumpy sidewalk of Mercado Street, negotiating the rise and fall of concrete where the roots of large oaks had undermined the sidewalk, would not draw my attention. But this time it did. At one o'clock in the morning, you can bet it did. I slowed down the cruiser and pulled alongside the boy. I noticed who it was, Jimmy Ramirez, the youngest of the Alfonso Ramirez kids. The Ramirez's had moved into town a year ago and had rented the old Villa house when the octogenarian had passed on. Hey, Jimmy, I called out. But the young boy was lost in his own world, his tiny chain legs churning the wheels of the tricycle like miniature pistons when they're alone like miniature pistons as he made those motor sounds that young children make when they're alone with their intense and private fantasies. Jimmy reached the corner of Calle Mercado and turned down Calle Cuatro. I knew the Ramirez family lived three doors down, so I pulled my cruiser over and parked. As I got out of the patrol car, I could see Jimmy riding his tricycle up the sidewalk to the front door of his home one of the old craftsman two-story wood frame houses that had been built on Calle Cuatro in the 30s. Out of habit, I slid my baton into my belt harness, patted my gun, and made my way to the house. The street was quiet, empty. The new Mercury street lamps that Mayor Cervantes had pushed through the city council cast an eerie purple aura over the entire block. When I got to the house, I noticed that all the lights in the house were off. Now, many of the other houses on the blocks kept a front porch light on as a safety measure, but there was no such porch light on here. And it was quiet, unusually quiet. Why was that? Suddenly it hit me. The constant chirp-chirp of the cicadas that marked summers in Arroyo Grande had stopped. Now, if there's one thing Arroyo Grande is famous for, it's its oversized, rampantly in-your-face cicadas, insects with no butt-off button. Now, they were inexplicably silent. Jimmy had disappeared through the front door, which remained ajar. I walked up to the porch and approached the door. It was too dark to see anything inside. I reached for my flashlight and turned it on, enveloping the front door in a pool of magna-intense light. I peered inside but could see no one. Probably asleep upstairs, I thought. I entered the house. In front of me were the worn wooden stairs that led to the bedrooms. To the right was an arched entrance leading to a modest dining room, and beyond that, another door leading to the kitchen. To my left, another arched door doorway leading to the living room, shrewn with kids' toys, wrappers, and empty pizza boxes, indicating a night of watching TV. Of course, tonight had been the annual matchup between Texas A&M and UT Austin, a rivalry few people in Arroyo Grande missed. Hello, I said loudly. No answer. Again, I called out. Hello, Senor Ramirez? Anybody home? Silence. Then I heard it, the make-believe engine sound I had heard Jimmy making on his tricycle, somewhere off in another room. I followed the sound and then suddenly stopped. My foot had hit something. 
I shined the light down up my feet. It was Jimmy's tricycle. I thought I heard the noise coming again. It seemed to be coming from behind the stairwell. I walked along the narrow corridor adjacent to the stairs that led to a back room. And then I saw it. There was a soft glow of light coming from a door underneath the stairs. I opened the door wider and peered in. I was looking down a long flight of stairs leading to a basement. At the bottom I could see that the light source was brighter. Something eerie about that light. Not incandescent, not a light bulb, but not fluorescent either. Brighter, but softer, and a strange orange color. I was about to call out again, but that's when my cop instinct kicked in. There was something wrong here. Why would little Jimmy be riding the tricycle along Calle Mercado at one o'clock in the morning? Why were all the lights out? Why, were there's no, why was there no response? I knew that there were four children in the Ramirez household in addition to Alfonso and his wife Betty. Where was everybody? Instinctively, I undid the hood of my revolver holster and started down the stairs. Suddenly, it was very important for me to be quiet. I measured each step on the stairs carefully, allowing my weight to settle gradually on the wooden steps, spreading out my weight and muffling the creak in the old wooden planks. I descended slowly, carefully keeping the light from my flashlight at my feet for obstacles, but away from the bottom of the steps where it might give away my approach. Halfway down the stairs, I began to hear it. A low, resonant moan, but a moan that seemed to come from more than one voice, as if two or three people were moaning together in harmony. It was not a happy noise. It was rather a moan of pain, of sorrow, of discord. Gradually, I got closer and closer to the bottom of the stairs. I turned off my flashlight and put it back in my belt. There was now more than enough light for me to see where I was stepping. The basement light was not only brighter, but I could see that indeed it was a light, a light unlike anything I had seen before. The color of it, the orange and reddish hue, the magenta tinge, how it flickered and danced. Was it filters? Neon? I was dying to peek around the corner and see its source. Finally, I was down at the last step. All I could see into the basement was blank walls facing the stairs. To my right, the basement opened up into a large room, but I couldn't see what was in it. The moaning was much louder now, and yes, it did seem to come from several voices. That's when I noticed two things, that my right hand was hurting from holding the gun so tightly. When, I had, when had I pulled out my pistol? And that I was drenched in sweat the moisture descending from my cheeks and down to my neck and down my back. I stepped down from the last step and inched my head closer to the edge of the stairwell that hid the basement from view. The mystery of the room was just inches away from me. I held my breath and looked inside. What I saw made my skin crawl. There were six of them. Alfonso Ramirez, his wife Betty, and the four children ranging in age from Jimmy to six-year-old Maria, seven-year-old Stevie, and nine-year-old Alfonso Jr. They were all suspended about four feet off the ground. They were floating. Their arms were outstretched, extended with their fingers pointed out. Their mouths were wide open. 
That's where the moaning was coming from. A harmonic synthesis of six voices merging into one deep, uninterrupted moan. But what made my blood run cold was their eyes. They were wide open, but only the whites of their eyes were visible. Their eyeballs seemed to have disappeared inside their skulls. Floating in the air with them were streams of blood and mucus, originating from their mouths, their eyes, their noses, their ears. The blood and bodily fluids floated and drifted, suspended in space, defying the laws of gravity. It reminded me of footage I'd seen of liquids that astronauts had spilled while being weightless in space. The shimmering, iridescent light totally enveloped the six of them. It seemed to irradiate from them, fluctuating rhythmically with the breathing of the six members of their Amidas family. I stared at this for what seemed an eternity. Suddenly, Jimmy's eyes descended from within his skull, and he was directly staring at me. Now they all regained their eyesight and were staring at me, intensely, angrily, menacingly. I could feel their glare focused an inch from behind my eyeballs. I was terrified. Then young Jimmy floated in the air toward me. As he came closer, I instinct instinctively took a step back. Then I noticed the hatred in his eyes, the stark, intense, angry hatred. How can a three-year-old hate so much? He came to rest directly in front of me, his, nose, his face nose to nose with mine. He opened his mouth to speak, but instead of the child's voice I had heard earlier, it was a man's voice, deep, raspy, and angry. Don't, he said emphatically. He dragged out the final syllable of the word into a hundred nuances of warning, threat, intimidation. Don't tell anyone. Jimmy settled to the ground, took my hand, and led me up the stairs. He walked me to my patrol car, like an adult might lead a small child. Except here I was the small child. Within minutes I was sitting in the driver's seat of my cruiser. Jimmy was on the sidewalk. He waved at me wordlessly, turned, and started back into the house. I started up the cruiser and resumed my night of patrolling the streets of Arroyo Grande. I went through my routine as if nothing had happened. They call it shock. When I returned to the station, I went to the bathroom, washed off the sweat, and then I threw up violently. When I was done, I went to one of the holding cells we keep for weekend drunks. I sat down in the empty cell and held my hand in my head in my hands. I was shaking over, more frightened than I'd ever been in my entire life. A week later, the Ramirez family moved out of town. That was three years ago. For all these years, I've held it inside, but I haven't forgotten that night. There isn't a day that go, goes by that I don't relive the sight of the Ramirez family floating in the air, the mucus and the blood, the vacant stares, the moaning, and above all, the intense hatred in their eyes. A hatred directed at me clearly, but originating from some terrible event that had shaped them or perhaps even had transformed them into that special, terrible thing that they were now. Maybe they were that way before. I don't know. Perhaps they'd always been like that. And who? What were they? How could they have such abilities to levitate, to make fluids float in the air? 
and the meaning of that horrible visceral moaning. What was the meaning of that night and of what I had witnessed? That's it. Thank you. Full circle. <laughs> I have notes, so. Thanks, Skylight Books, by the way. <laughs> so as it's mentioned, I'm from El Paso, and El Paso and Los Angeles share a rich literary tradition. We share many good Chicano writers like John Reggie, Dagoberto Gilb. And when I say share, I mean people were born and raised in El Paso. Some people pass through El Paso and then they live in Los Angeles. We have Jesus Trevino, Alicia Gaspar de Alba, uh, Tomas Rivera, Oscar Zeta Acosta, Ruben Salazar, Jose Antonio Burciega, and many others that I probably am missing. But I have a history with Los Angeles as well. It's mixed with my early days of journalism. I started my writing career as the first woman hired to cover sports at the El Paso Times in El Paso, Texas. And I do remember and I'm thankful for coach Don Haskins and his sensitivity. Those who don't know who Don Haskins is, he was the first coach to integrate Division I college basketball with black, Latino, and white players in the 1960s. And in 1966, UTEP, then called Texas Western College, won the Division I NCAA championship against um, the University of Kentucky. And it was 72-65, so they won handily. <laughs> and they made a movie about this, um, the all-black um, all starting five playing against the white starting five called Glory Road. So if you want to learn more about it, just watch that movie. And Don Haskins has a little cameo in it. Um, I covered Haskins basketball back in the 80s when he, he was on his downward decline. Um, he was a lot older. Um, I was the editor of the UTEP Prospector, and I worked for the El Paso Times. So um, after a UTEP basketball game, when all the reporters had to go into the locker room to interview all the players, uh, we had to do this in order to make deadline. And so we got to walk in there, uh, including me and one other woman at the time. We entered the lock locker room, and I can't unsee what I saw back then. <laughs> <laughs> But Haskins luckily realized that things needed to change the way we covered sports. So the next home game, he um, asked all his players to wait outside the locker room so that we didn't have to go inside the locker room to be uh, to witness what we did. So I'm still I'm still thankful to him for that. <laughs> so after graduating from UTEP, I left El Paso. And I was a journalist here in California at the Long Beach Press-Telegram yeah. and the Newhall Signal and the now defunct Oxnard Press-Courier. I don't know. Um, I think it went under in the 90s. Um, Oxnard is home of the first unionized farm worker in the early 1900s. It's also the birthplace of another really good comedic writer, Michelle Seros, who we lost way too early. So after my stint in California, I moved to Austin, 
before I worked at the Austin American Statesman and I wrote Brides and Sinners in El Chuco between 1999 and 2005. It was published in 2006. It was one of the top selling books for the University of Arizona Press. I'm really proud of that because Anyway, during that time, <laughs> I got married and I had two children. Uh, my boys are ages 16 and 14 years old. So it's taken me more than 10 years to write another book. And part of that reason has to do with lovely children. <laughs> yes, too many. But this one is titled Fight Like a Man and Other Stories We Tell Our Children. It's a novella and short stories, and it was published by the University of New Mexico Press. And I don't live in El Paso anymore. I live in Fredericksburg, Texas. But because I haven't gotten El Paso out of my system, this book is also about El Chuco. And I like to compare the novella that starts off the book to Elizabeth Gilbert's memoir, Eat, Pray, Love. I don't know if you all are familiar with that. I know it was a, best, it was a great movie. So the novella's main character is Monica Montoya, and it's She's filled with a middle-aged woman's malaise, and she goes searching for something better, just like Gilbert's character. But the biggest difference between the two main characters being that one is an upper-class, an upper-middle-class housewife, while the other is a working-class Mexican-American housewife. So it changes the story just a little bit. And because Monica isn't a woman of means, she doesn't have the luxury of traveling to Europe and Asia in search of a better life. She can't sleep with exotic, brilliant Brazilian men, and I think in the movie it was Greek men or something, um, to get recharged sexually, or visit an Indian ashram to find her spirituality. Monica, she has to fill her existential middle-aged angst with more practical locales and people. She does this by walking through her neighborhood and hooking up with a small-time drug dealer. And she gets her spiritual guidance from her half-sister, Bernie. And like Gilbert's character in the book and the movie, Monica's metaphysical transformation comes from her journey. However, it's a more relatable one and, frankly, a little more honest in that it ends in an unwanted pregnancy at the hands of her young lover. So with that set up, I'm going to read you the very first chapter of the book in hopes of getting you to buy it. Okay. It's called Curandera. These pink, yellow, and orange paint chips need to be swept off the sidewalk. Yes. And I wonder who lets them pile up here. No wonder people call this place a dump. The adobe's been painted a hundred times. They have no pride. The chips stick to my heels. Next, I hear, and without looking up, I step forward and I bump the old woman in line in front of me. Excuse me, I raise my head and I study the wild-haired, messy senora who does not look up but nods and continues staring at the cracks in the cement in front of her. I lean my back against the gray wall and I look out to where the sand puddles against the curb across the street. To my right is the woman, and to my left is a young couple arguing. They've argued all morning long about anything. Nah, man, senora jurado, she don't take insurance. Don't be stupid, the boy with cornrows says, running his hand over his hair. Well, how should I know? I have never been to a witch doctor, the young red-haired girl says. 
Curandera Flor, he says. Well, yeah, that's what I said, a witch doctor, she nods. No, man, that's the trouble with you. You don't listen. You got those big ears, and they don't do you any good. He slaps the tips of her hair. Neither is right, I think. Anna is a hoer and a thief, and I'm here to see her. So what does that make me? There was nowhere else I could go. How would I get $300 out of Sal without having to explain? Out of Reggie? I touch my hair and I push my sunglasses up my nose. A dark man with one arm opens a screen door that has a thick fleece blanket with a picture of a lion where the wire screen should be. He yells from the Adobe unit, next. Two more people before me, and then I can get in and out and be rid of this thing once and for all. I hug my stomach tight. She can fix you up, Lord, just like that. The young boy snaps his fingers. Witch doctor, whatever you think. I'm telling you, Senora Jurado is that good. Someone snorts like a pig, and everyone in line starts to snort. The red-haired girl takes off down the sidewalk, and I roll my eyes. Stand upright, then walk across the street. The others in line scatter themselves in a slow, deliberate pace, too. After the patrol car passes, I cross back over and stand in line where I was before. The old woman never moved. Soy adelante, she mumbles. The one-armed man opens a screen door, and before he can scream next, the old woman is at his side. He shakes his head and he pats her shoulder. A few minutes later, the man has the woman by the collar and he shoves her out the door. She doesn't resist, she doesn't complain, she just keeps repeating, Que Dios te salve, mija. Next, he says, waving for me to come inside with the stub that used to be his hand. When I walk through the screen door, I pause to take off my sunglasses. I hang them from the collar of my shirt. As I step over, two people lying on the cement floor on their stomachs with needles on the backs of their calves. ¿Estás aquí por un mal? He asks. Are you sick? Pienso que estoy impregnant, I say, staring at his arm, which ends mid-bicep. I want to know what happened to it. But before I think to ask him, he puts the nub under my face, lifts my chin, and studies my nose. He shakes his head, then he takes my left breast in his good hand and examines my face. When he sees me blink and suck air, he says, See, sí, estás embarazada, and then he lets go of my breast. He was so quick that I had no time to complain. I'm unnerved from the roughness of the stump that he placed under my chin. Next, a deep, coarse, familiar voice called out, Eugenio, who's next? Eugenio points his stub to the pink door that is closed. Confused, I stare at the stub. Then with his good arm, he twists his hand like it's, he's opening a doorknob, and then I understand. Adelante, the voice says. I walk to the door and I open it. The small room is painted teal, and I stifle a nervous laugh. When I see the red, green, and white rebozo Anna Jurado wears over her black lace dress, I ball my fingers into a fist. ¿Qué es el problema? Anna says, then looks up. She squints and lifts a small red lava lamp toward the doorway. I sigh loud. Yes, it's me, and I'm here for your tea. Anna smiles, showing her brown gap teeth. 
then places the lamp back on the cinder block next to the couch. You pregnant? Why else would I come? My voice is low and firm. You still mad at me, Moni? She pats the sofa for me to sit down. You look just like your mother, all curves and hair. She kept her looks a long time, too. I look down at Anna. This isn't a reunion. Just give me the tea. Yeah, we'll call it even. You pay like everyone else, Anna strains to get up. That's not what I meant. I turn to walk out when Eugenio walks through the door with two mason jars filled with what look like weeds. This is for killing the baby, Anna says out of breath. She points to the green tinted mason jar and Eugenio hands it to me. I take it. Cotton root bark, vitamina, ipigeril. Drink it like three, like tea, three times a day. Anna holds up three fingers for six days. The other is to help with the pain. Eugenio waits for me to pull money out of my front pocket before handing me the clear glass jar, which I place under my armpit. I hold the green jar up toward the lamp with the cash between my fingers and watch him walk out. I hear him yell, next, and Anna folds her hand over the $20 bill in my hand. I didn't charge your father. No era así. I loved him too. I wince and I pull away from Anna's grip. The jar under my arm shatters on the cement floor and I hold the green jar tight. Don't you dare talk to me about Vicente. Moni, you need more chicolote for the pain. Let me get Eugenio. Don't bother, I back out of the room. You're a cheap substitute for a doctor and a wife. He loved your mother best. Anna yells as I pass the couple going by. I step on one of the women lying on the floor and I stumble. Eugenio, light and quick, is next to me. He gives me his good arm. I keep my grip on the remaining jar, right myself, and I walk out the door. Outside, the cutting sunlight makes me feel about as normal as seeing snow capping the Franklins. I jump when the screen door slams shut behind me. And that's chapter one of the novella. So we kind of started with El Paso, and then we ended with El Paso. So let's talk about El Paso. <laughs> the talk? Yeah. Bring Azul over. <laughs> yeah. Has she met the family in El Paso? Uh, yet? No, not yet. Ooh, she's going to yeah. be spoiled. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's going to be a thing. So, she's a happy girl. So, do y'all want to talk about anything regarding uh, our readings or El Paso? Or? I have a question for Jesus, okay. actually. Awesome. Where did the Ramirez family come from and where did that scene yeah, <laughs> above? <laughs> You know, the, the, the first collection is very light and very positive. And I think over the, the period of, because I, I wrote that in 95, and since then, I think I've gotten darker. And this last collection is very science fiction-y, very Twilight Zone-y, and very kind of dark in many ways. But it's because I'm dealing with light and darkness, and I'm trying to, um, 
uh, I felt that it's one thing to be light and positive, but it's more important to be light and positive in the face of darkness. And so I have to, in order to understand that, you have to paint the darkness. And that's where the darkness is in the, in the short stories. But in the finale of it, you get the lightness. You, get, you realize that there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel. So. Where did the influence come from? Where did the influence Oh. Oh. Oh, you know what? Um, believe it or not, I, these come to me in dreams. Like four of the six stories in the collection uh, are, were directly inspired by dreams. I just wake up at night, I write them out, and then the next morning I look at them and then I start working them, workshopping them. And, and um, I, I had a dream of this thing. I was the person and this was happening. I was walking down the steps and I turned around and there were these bodies hanging in the air. and. I didn't know what it was and what's going on here and, and then and the, the story of course the mystery is it never gets solved because I think what happens is there are things in the world that are dark that are just there and we try to avoid acknowledging them because it's too dark it's too too scary In color, uh, yeah, I guess you know they're they're like they're they're you know technicolor. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, other questions? Uh, uh, I I think you know uh, one one thing I did want to say is uh, I'm really impressed by the structure of of your book because um, it, 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 you know, it's, it seems like it's so head and shoulders above the, the first one in terms of how you're doing it. Because at first I thought it was, they were a collection of short stories and then I began to see the thread. And then I thought, wow, this is really well done. So congratulations on that. Yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.